award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast, just go to Apple Podcasts and you can grab it there. I mentioned right before the break, we were going to be jumping into our discussion today. And again, you know, we've been, well, gosh, next week is our 25-year anniversary for the program. And uh, we have a wide range of topics. Uh, Obviously, everything is tied in to the economy to uh, the financial markets, uh, things of that nature. And today's topic might seem a little odd to some people from the outside looking in um, because it has to do with uh, a case regarding education admission this before the Supreme Court. But what I mentioned earlier was this is extremely important, number one, for uh, doing what's fair and what's right. Uh, But the other part is, as I've always said, we want the very best people, qualified people in the best schools and in the best jobs because that's our future. So we don't want to water down anything that we don't have to. So we're talking with my guest this morning, Mr. David Bernstein. He's a university professor uh, at George Mason. He's the executive director of the Liberty and Law Center uh, at the Scalia Law School over in uh, Virginia. And he's been teaching since 1995 and has uh, connections to that lawsuit that I was talking about before the Supreme Court. Good morning, Mr. Bernstein. Good morning. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. I appreciate it. Um, so if you would, just give our listeners an overview about uh, Students for Fair Admissions and what's going on at the Supreme Court right now. Sure. So uh, there are really two cases that were at issue. There were lawsuits filed against University of North Carolina, which is the oldest public university in the country, and Harvard University, which is the oldest private university in the country. And the allegations were that they are uh, preferring black and Hispanic students over uh, white and Asian students uh, in admissions, and specifically at Harvard, that they were skewing their admissions results to ensure that they didn't have, quote-unquote, too many uh, Asian students. So the um, issues facing the court are very simple. First of all, the Supreme Court has held in the past that um, universities have a compelling interest in diversity in in their classes such that they could use race as one factor. Uh, So the first question is um, that when universities do that, they're supposed to do it in a very narrow, um, specific way where they're really thinking about what they're doing, why they're doing if they're doing it the right way. They're not supposed to be discriminating against any particular groups. So the first question is, are they violating the existing standard? But the more controversial issue in the case uh, is that the plaintiffs also asked the Supreme Court to say um, that they should overturn their prior rulings and hold that race, using race in admissions is not a compelling government interest, that the law, both the Constitution and civil rights laws, ban the use of race, and that um, the, 
that it should not be allowed in the future. Uh, so those are the two things that the Supreme Court has to decide. So you're a graduate of Yale Law School. Uh, I mentioned you've been uh, teaching since 1995, so you have a lot of experience, and um, and, and and you uh, are a visiting professor at multiple universities, uh, along with being at George Mason. Um, how long has this been going on, and, and like when did you become aware of it? So this has been going on for, you know, since the 1970s, essentially. Uh, and it's been always unpopular among the public, but among the elites at the universities, the government, the media, um, the use of races both welcome and pervasive. So there have been lawsuits flying back and forth, and really what keeps happening, to be perfectly uh, uh, blunt about it, is the Supreme Court keeps saying, to not just in university context, but other contexts too, you know, we don't want to completely say you can never use race because there might be these very limited circumstances where it's helpful or, or useful or whatnot. So here we'll give, you, we'll give you this very narrow way that you're allowed to use it, and the reaction of the players, the university officials and so forth is, oh, the Supreme Court said we could do whatever we want as long as we don't have a formal quota. So that's the back and forth that I keep seeing. The Supreme Court says, here's this very narrow way you could do this, and you know, giving uh, you know, uh, an inch and uh, the other side taking the yard basically and saying, oh, well, as long as we do it kind of surreptitiously and don't say we're using a quota, we could do whatever we want. And as far as, you know, what I'm concerned, I mean, obviously this has been a pervasive thing in uh, universities, certainly since I went to university in law school in the mid to late 80s and 90s, and this was already very apparent. I think one thing that, you know, I wrote a book called Classified, the Untold Story of Racial Classification in America, and, you know, it just uh, came out in July, and so I filed an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief based on that book, because... I had something I thought that was a little bit new to add to the whole argument, which is, you know, the argument's always been reverse discrimination or not, or uh, is it just, uh, you know, diversity or making up for past discrimination? And I said, look, whatever your viewpoint on whether universities, for example, should be able to use race, the way they use it is incredibly crude and absurd because they use these classifications for race that are based on these government rules back from the 70s that weren't very well thought out. So universities, for example, when Harvard is putting people into the different categories, they put them in basically white, Hispanic, uh, Native American, Indian, Asian American, uh, and African American. And then you start with these classifications. What does that mean to be Asian American? Right? Asian American could be anyone from Pakistan to the Philippines to China. These are not people who have anything in common except that they come within this uh, sort of arbitrary classification. So if Harvard says, hey, we're looking for diversity and we just have too many Asians, to me that's a meaningless statement because you be, if you have 50 Chinese and 50 Indians, why would that make you less diverse if you then took in someone whose family came from Malaysia or Vietnam or somewhere? They're not to say it's sort of racist, really, to, to get anyone who happens to be from a whole huge part of the world where 60% of the population uh, lives should be considered part of the same category. Yeah, no, and I think many, many, many people, most in general, would agree with that. It's It just makes absolutely no sense, and like you said, it's so arbitrary. And one of the articles I read on this earlier in the week, um, it said as an example that Harvard, uh, an Asian applicant with academics in the top 10%, has a 12.7% chance of getting in with the same grades and test scores 
um, a black student has a 56.1% in that same scenario. That that makes absolutely no sense. And I think, you, you know, you use the term reverse racism um, earlier. I think a lot of people would view it that way. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, I don't think anyone is arguing that universities can't take into account when they're looking at your you know, high school record at your test scores, that you were struggling in some way, your family was uh, poor, you were homeless, you went to a terrible high school where there weren't a lot of classes, but you overcame those obstacles. So the issue isn't whether you, so really the underlying issue is not whether uh, universities should be allowed to take adversity into account or overcoming obstacles or even, you know, other relevant factors that aren't you know, designed to be taken into account by, like, the SAT or whatever. The question is, should race per se, without anything else, be something that universities consider? Uh, and I think you're right. There are very few people actually think that's a good idea, but um, it is nevertheless something that universities, at least, you know, selective universities basically do universally. Yeah, and it always, t- to me, and I think a lot of folks that have listened to the program over the last uh, couple decades, is that, um, you know, if you're laying on an operating table or if I need legal representation, you know, I'm not going to care about uh, Mr. David Bernstein's, you know, what color he is or his background, or excuse me, I do care about your background because it would have to do with your success uh, through your schooling and, and, and your work. But, you know, your your religious bend or any of that stuff, and I, it just seems we've gotten so far away from that, and things just tend to get watered down, and I don't think that that's good, as I mentioned earlier, for America uh, at all, not good at all. Because eventually it comes into play for whether it's care for an individual, uh, protecting an individual, um, adding to the American economy and the financial success of this country. Look for at least for you know I think I think especially for professional schools that is really a sound point. Like for medical school, you know you want doctors who are going to be the most competent doctors. For undergraduate colleges, there's a case to be made that true diversity is useful. It's having lots of different people from coming from lots of different perspectives, but to use race crudely, radio like I said, the categories are crude. I mentioned uh, you know, and I go through how this all occurred in my in my book, Classified. But uh, I mentioned the Asian classification. But, you know, uh, the white classification, I mean, what does someone whose family came from Iceland have in, someone, have in common with someone whose family came from Hungary, with someone whose family came from Morocco? Those are all considered white classifications. Uh, they're all deemed white by Harvard and UNC, but they come from very different perspectives. So if universities were really interested in getting different perspectives, instead of asking you to check the race box, they would just ask you sort of an open-ended question, like what life experiences have you had that might add to, you know, making this an interesting uh, intellectually diverse campus. And that could have something to do with your background. It could be you're a refugee from Bosnia, and that's kind of interesting. But it could also be that you went on a mission trip when you were 15 and something really profound happened to you. It could be a religious experience you had. It could be, you know, a whole a whole variety of things. It could be how you have, have, have become a fan of some obscure philosopher who you think should uh, get more attention, uh, that you really would love to talk about that in your philosophy classes. Whatever 
it is. There are all sorts of ways that one can contribute intellectually to a campus, but the mere fact that you're from one of these, you know, random classifications, you know, saying, oh, well, this person is white and this person is quote-unquote Asian, this person is Hispanic, which could be anyone from someone who's from Spain and 100% European to someone who's 100%, you know, Indian from Mexico, uh, you know, Native American Indian. Uh, the, the, the idea that these classifications really um, are coextensive with life experience is kind of uh, very um, very blunt a very blunt a very blunt and effective tool at achieving true diversity yeah definitely I couldn't agree more um, if you're uh, listening and you'd like more information on the topic today you can go to uh, studentsforfairadmissions.org. Obviously, if you're driving, don't try to write it down. That's not safe. Just uh, drop me an email, and I'll get you that website. And also, uh, before our break, uh, Mr. Bernstein, how do people get classified your book? So uh, you should be able to just go to Amazon and type in Bernstein Classified or Classified the Untold Story, and it should come up, or any of the other websites, Walmart or Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books, you might be able to find it in a local bookstore or library. You can ask them to order it if they don't have it. And the Kindle version is only 10 bucks, so uh, not too big a dent on your wallet if you have to want to read it. I mean, and, you know, if anyone, if your listeners do read it and want to, like, you know, let me know what they think. If they have any comments, I'd love to hear from them. Perfect. Thank you for that. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll wrap up our conversation with uh, our guest this morning, Mr. David Bernstein, and uh, kind of get his uh, hedge on what he thinks gonna, may happen with the Supreme Court. It's been a too long time. No peace of mind I'm ready for the times to get better Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast, just go to uh, Apple Podcasts. You can grab it there. Uh, wrapping up our conversation with our guest this morning, Mr. David Bernstein. Uh, he's the uh, head of the Scalia uh, law school over at George Mason, uh, graduated uh, from Yale with his uh, uh, JD. And um, we've been talking about this case. It's before the Supreme Court, uh, in particular against uh, University of North Carolina and Harvard, um, although there are others, as uh, Mr. Bernstein mentioned, um, and what this may mean for future education uh, here in the country. So, uh, Mr. Bernstein, what how do you feel about, you know, uh, this week was oral arguments, correct? Correct, yes. Yeah, how do you Monday. feel about things? Well, judging from the argument, I think, you know, we have a 6-3 majority who are, are pretty conservative, and I think the abortion case last spring showed they're not, um, they're not shy about overturning precedent. So I expect that Harvard and UNC will uh, lose, and the only question is whether there'll be some last-ditch effort to try to write a relatively narrow opinion, which will still allow some room for race, or whether the court will just say, you know, we've had it, uh, uh, no more, uh, and we don't want any more excuses. And I, you know, I think they'll likely be more inclined towards the latter, uh, if only because, like I said, the pattern has been 
that the court gives like a limited authority to use race for limited purposes in limited circumstances. And instead of the, 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 the parties involved taking that really seriously, they just say, oh, we could do whatever we want because you know, it's really expensive to sue us. No one's going to bother. So as long as we don't do it in a really ham-handed way that makes it obvious that we're going to have quotas, we could do whatever we want. And I think uh, there's probably, probably the court's lost patience with that. Yeah. And, and I understand that, um, that the newest judge, Jackson uh, had to recuse herself because of her connection to Harvard for that piece, right? Yes, that's true. Yeah. Okay. So, h- how does that play out then? If you're down one justice, I mean, you're still looking for the majority, I guess, right? Yeah. You know, in this, I don't think it'll make much of a difference in this case. We're looking at six two versus six three potentially. Uh, the only, I guess, I think really the, the no Jackson's vote wasn't really in question, uh, but I do think that. Um, the issue will be, you know, will the justices uh, write something relatively narrow? And I think, you know, in the past also, the court was very inclined being, you know, the part of the elite themselves to defer to institutions like Harvard. But I think that Harvard and other elite colleges and uh, parts of our society have become so hostile, like there's such a divergence in worldview between them and the more conservative justices. I don't know. Like, Kavanaugh used to teach at Harvard, but once he was kind of falsely accused, or at least accused with no evidence of sexual assault, Harvard just dropped him like a hot potato. So, you know, whereas 20, 30 years ago, someone like Justice Kavanaugh might have thought, well, you know, it's Harvard, we should give him some leeway. I don't think the justices are inclined to be so charitable anymore. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Again, just, you know, call balls and strikes and, and do what right and constitutional and hopefully this uh this current court's going to give us that my guest this morning has been mr david bernstein he is um uh the uh he's in charge of the scalia law school over george mason and uh he's recently uh released uh, his latest book classified the untold story of racial classification in america so um if uh, like i said earlier if you're driving and you can't write down that title just drop me an email and um i'll i'll send you the uh the title of the book also you can go to studentsforfairadmissions.org a ton of free stuff on this website and you you know you can read all of these uh papers and articles that have been uh that have been uh published on this and other important subjects mr bernstein thanks so much for being with us and taking time uh out of your schedule i really enjoyed speaking with you Thanks. Great to be here. Okay. Take care. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. And uh, that does it for us. We, um, we're out of time, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, I'll talk with you on the Morning News Express with uh, Bob Miller, Ryan Hedrick. Those are uh, live calls, 556-5750 weekday mornings. And then we'll see you here uh, next weekend for another edition of the Your Financial Editor program. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. These girls you love never gave back diamond rings. I wish every porch had a swing. Kids still learn to say, sir and ma'am, how to shake a hand. I wish every state had a Birmingham. 
It's your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast, just go to Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for being with us this weekend. Again, uh, happy Veterans Day to all of our uh, veterans out there. And thank you very, very much. God bless you and your families. Um, So when we talk about uh, the economy, um, a good bit of information, data came out this week. Uh, one wasn't a big surprise, but it's sad to see small businesses continue to feel the impacts of inflation. And uh, they've also continued to struggle to find adequate workers to fill their job openings. So according to the National Federation of Independent Business, 33% of small business owners cited inflation as their most important problem in October. Uh, that number is three points higher than it was in September. So it actually got worse. And also the NFIB Small Business Optimism Index dropped eight-tenths of 1% in October, marking the 10th consecutive month that it's remained under the 49-year average. So according to uh, Bill Dunkelberg, who's their chief economist, he's been on the program before, he was just saying once again, owners continue to show a dismal view about future sales growth and business conditions and that small business owners expecting better business conditions over the next six months. That also dropped by two points, according to the NFIB uh, data. So, you know, last week we talked about a lot, actually, about um, the layoffs and hiring freezes and all the other stuff. We got more of that this week with, um, you know, Facebook and Twitter and and others. And they're saying that that's going to gain steam as we get into 2023. So you already see this pessimism with the small business owners out there who always have it hard. You know, and that, that's why I respect them so much and appreciate them and try to support them if I can. Um, but when the virus made its way here and you start picking winners and losers and that stupid essential, non-essential, uh, they've really been upside down for, you know, three years now. And then all of a sudden you dump inflation on them. It's uh, it's, it's really, really tough to say the least. And talking about inflation, we got the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, this week. And um, it dropped a little bit in October, which, of course, is always good to see. So the headline number came in at 7.7% on an annual basis. So what they're saying is prices climbed 7.7% from October of 2021 to October of 2022. And that 7.7% was lower than the 8% headline figure that uh, um, a lot of economists were looking for. So that was the good news. The bad news is it was 7.7%. And the other part of that is it spurred this conversation because we're in November about Thanksgiving. 
and how much Thanksgiving dinner is going to cost, how much more this year, obviously, if you're up 7.7%. What about every meal for the last year and a half as prices have been going up? How about every gallon of gas the last year and a half? And this 7.7%, oh, by the way, gas is up 68, 68% year over year. So the headline number, like I said, it, it it's a good, you know, it was a positive, but it, it's nothing to get excited about. There's so much more work to be done. What about milk, butter, bread, fish, whatever? You, you pick it and you look at the inflation from October to October. And we're not just going to eat one time this month, at least I'm not. For Thanksgiving dinner, I'm going to eat all the time because I have to. But see, there's people that literally are suffering and struggling because of this uh, this subject. And it's, it's so infuriating because it's self-imposed. Because the people that say they're in charge really aren't in charge. They, you know, they have either no experience in the real world or... Uh, very limited or poor experience in the real world. And that's how you end up with this, this entire economic financial situation that we're in. We also saw initial jobless claims go up by 7,000 from the previous week. I had mentioned, you know, just this week alone, Facebook and Twitter and Salesforce and and others, many, many others were laying off. Um, Our one son lives in Charlotte. I was talking to him. Uh, he called me a couple days ago, and they came in. Luckily, you know, he's protected, but they came in, wiped out 100 people from his office. Um, so it's uh, it's scary. Then you look at the, the, the mortgage applications out there. Um, they continue to go down last week, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, um, both for new homes sales and also for refinancing. They were both down. But, you know, that's what happens when you go from 3% for a 30-year fixed less than a year ago to over 7% for that same mortgage. You double it in less than a year. The latest number I saw, 7.14% for a 30-year fixed. A 15-year fixed... 6.4%. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's really, really hard, really tough out there. We're starting to see, well, certain parts of the housing uh, sector, they're already in recession. Um, You still have people holding on to higher prices and that's helping. But again, just think about that ripple. Housing is so important to our economy here in the United States. So if you don't buy a new house, guess what? You don't put new carpet in it. Um, You don't put appliances in it. Or if you don't build it, I should say, which a lot of builders are slowing up. And it's the same if you don't buy a house because most time people buy a house and they're going to go in and do certain things. So they're going to end up at Lowe's or wherever, you know, the the hardware store down the street so that they can get some things um, updated or remodeled, whatever it might be. That's going to stop. They're not going to need a trash can for the end of the lane because now they're not moving. So um, 
really, really interesting to see how this is all playing out. And it's also, like I said, very frustrating because uh, most of it, I would say 90% of it, we've done to ourselves. Well, we didn't do it, but uh, poor leadership has put us uh, right where we are. So, um, all right, quick break. And then when we come back, what's long-term care? Who needs it? What's it cover? What are the costs? The latest statistics? All coming your way. American girls and American guys We'll always stand up and salute We'll always recognize when we see old glory flying There's a lot of men dead So we can sleep in peace at night when we lay down our heads my daddy served in the army We lost his right eye But he flew a flag out in our yard Till the day that he died He wanted my mother, my brother, my sister and me Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast, just go to Apple Podcasts and you can grab it there. Um, Okay, so getting to what I mentioned earlier, long-term care. So this is something – so I've been um, a a fiduciary and I've been an advisor for, you know, over 30 years and have this conversation all the time with uh, with folks when we're doing planning because it's it's really important – uh, to at least have the discussion and look at the numbers of how long-term care could impact uh, your retirement. So if you're near retirement or in it, listen closely because uh, I've got a lot of statistics, but it's also a lot of good information. Okay, I myself, I know I lost an uncle to uh, to, to Alzheimer's. I'm sure 95% of the people listening either have a family member a friend, um, or have, you know, shared in stories with someone about this uh, subject. The reason, once people are over age 65, 50-50 chance, basically, that you're going to need some type of long-term care help. So what's long-term care all about? Well, you know, as we get older, it's great, the golden years and everything's going fine, but also there tends to be some... uh, Things tend to tend to wear out a little bit, whether it's our bodies and or our minds. So when it comes to long-term care, the way it's defined is by something they call ADLs, activities of daily living. And those activities of daily living include bathing, walking, um, using the restroom, showering, uh, eating, you know, you're able to cook, those kind of things. And of course, not only to do it, but to do it safely for yourself. So you're not a threat or a risk to yourself or anybody in your building or whatever it may be. So generally, if you can't do two of those six ADLs, then that triggers the uh, the long-term care coverage and the help that would be necessary. So some people um, get it in-home, which is the preferred way 
because we all know we get better if we're home. And um, you look at the, you, you know, right now, when I saw these statistics, 65,600 regulated, these are just the regulated long-term care facilities in the country right now, 65,600. That's according to the National Center for Health Statistics, um, serving well over 8 million residents. So over 286,000 of those are in day-based caregiving, over 811,000 people in assisted living facilities, over 1.3 million in nursing homes. So obviously this is something that is happening every single day. You know, people have these issues themselves, and then obviously it impacts their family members and their involvement. And then you look at um, the money. It's it's extremely expensive, and that's why it ties in. Well, first and foremost, this is a dignity issue. Are you going to be able to take care of yourself with your planning and your funds, or are you going to have to uh, go live with your children, or are you going to be able to, you know, like I said, afford professional uh, care at some type of a facility? Well, like I said, it's very, very expensive. Um, but we're seeing more and more of it because of the baby boomers, because they're living longer. So like I said, that's the good part. The downside is if uh, if physical or mental health deteriorates and you need these types of uh, of services. So I just pulled some of the recent costs just for the state of Maryland. They're, and you, they're available. You can get them um, for each individual state. I know we have folks that uh, listen to the program who have moved out of state and they're listening, listening at WFMD.com or as a podcast. So this is just Maryland. But if you can't find your state information, just drop me an email because I can put my fingers right on it. It's in my conference room. But um, so home health care, you know, you start looking at these these numbers. Um, you have what they call homemaker services. Uh, that's over $5,000 a month. And then they have what's uh, also called a homemaker health aid. That's also $5,000 a month. And then you have adult day health care. That's over $1,900 a month. And again, that would fluctuate depending on how often you go, it's necessary, that type of thing. And then assisted living facilities, private one-bedroom, $4,900 a month. And then when you get into the nursing home care level, a semi private room in the state of Maryland, $10,342 per month. Private room, over $12,000 a month. A month. So then you start looking at statistics. The average entry age is just shy of, and again, these are just averages based on government statistics, uh, just shy of 80 years old, average stay, just shy of, you know, of of four years. It's like 3.7, three years, seven months, something like that is is average. Um, So if you're talking about just 
pick a number, $9,000 a month, a month for three years. And that's just the average. What if you're there for six or seven or eight? Um, You can see the huge drawdown in your assets, both for you and your spouse. And then, of course, it wipes out your legacy uh, that maybe you were going to leave to your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, to your church, whatever it might be. So once you get, like I mentioned, close to or if you're in retirement, I strongly suggest that you take a hard look at this and address the uh, the potential. Like I said, you could take a coin out and flip it. Once you're over 65, statistically, it's 50-50. You're going to need some type of care. So there's different things you can do. One, you can say, I don't care about it, which is fine. It's free country. Uh, two, you can explore your current asset base and wonder if you have enough to self-insure and go through that, whatever, just two or three or $400,000, whatever it might be, um, that it would take to cover that, that wouldn't be left for your children and other family members. Um, or you could look at sharing that risk with long-term care plans and different coverage options. So they're basically the options that you have. I don't care. I'm not going to worry about it. Um, I have enough to self-insure. I'm not going to run out of money. And I don't care about not leaving anything. And then the other is, how can I transfer some of this risk somewhere else so that I'm not bearing it all on my own? And there's a lot of good different plans for that these days. They've really improved so that uh, depending if, you know, you're able to get it, if you don't use the money that it costs to cover it, then it just doesn't disappear. But instead, you know, uh, beneficiaries would get that money. So some really good planning can be done. Um, we've seen it. Save legacies so that kids, grandkids, church, whoever, your favorite charity gets it versus just burning through it. So there's wonderful things that can be done. I've seen both sides of it. And um, I definitely would go with giving this some attention, making sure this is part of your planning. And um, if we can help in any way, just let me know and uh, be more than happy to help you with that. And um, but it's it is it's it's very important. important. That's why I brought it up. Okay. Happy Veterans Day to everybody. Thanks for listening to the program. I'll be with uh, Bob Miller and Ryan Hedrick, 550, 650, 750, weekday mornings, live phone calls, and then uh, back for another edition of the Your Financial Editor program. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. Cover my
past editions of this program are available in the audio vault at WFMD.com, a service of Holtzapel Heating and Air Conditioning. News Radio 930, WFMD Frederick. A connoisseur media radio station. 7 o'clock. 